Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. If I asked you what industry had civil war, has crazy opinions, trolling, personal attacks, but also is an amazing open source community and has built the infrastructure that we are using and will use for the rest of our lives and for the history of the world. Do you think I'm talking about the Bitcoin industry? Actually, no. I'm talking about the early days of the internet in the 90s. I'm talking about people who were the first proponents and inventors of building out open source communities, but also making sure that they are viable business models in the future. My guest today, Dr. Mark Flory, is one of those people who actually was one of the inventors and conceptualizers of open source software as a business model. It was really cool because I didn't realize how actually brilliant he was until we started talking. We talked about how he built the first application layer, JBoss, on top of the internet. And his first two customers were the Mormons and the porn companies. Sounds very similar to Bitcoin, doesn't it? The people that need to use a technology the most are the ones that are disenfranchised with existing technologies. I really don't want to ruin the rest of the episode for you. We talked about like quantum mining and some of the benefits and why he thinks the ICO world needs to actually come back. We debated proof of work versus proof of stake. And he was really able to open up my mind to a lot of these things. Enjoy the show. Have a great listen, grab a coffee or whatever your favorite beverage is. I promise you, this is definitely one of my best episodes. Talk to you guys soon. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash charlie it's such an easy card to use you get the card in the mail you download the bitpay app you put bitcoin on the app and when you want to send bitcoin from the app into your debit card it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered it's really so easy you almost wonder like why didn't this come out in 2011 when bitcoin first launched well it was very difficult to do in fact i actually tried to launch my own debit card but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees, and I don't like that. So check it out, bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. 
Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really really like. It's fast and simple and it's the first crypto powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google App Stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, "Hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen?" And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce check them out at blockworksgroup.io that's blockworksgroup.io i promise you will not be disappointed at this point you've been listening to the show we've had 50 some odd episodes and you're starting to get a feel of you know the course of the show why i started it and the type of guests that i have um, I also use the show to teach myself new lessons and to talk to people who were involved in different industries that draw some really nice parallels to our industry. Because, you know, one of my mottos, as you guys know, is you really need to understand where you came from to know where you're going. Today, we're I'm very pleased to have on the show Dr. Mark Fleury. Mark, thank you for so much for coming on the show. You're welcome, and Hello. What was interesting to me when I started doing the research for this show is that you were involved in open source software for a very, very, very long time. And in fact, you were one of the first people in the 90s to actually figure out a way to commercialize and, um, you know, actually earn profit um, on open source software. When most people think that open open source software is always related to like nonprofit work and usually when there's like no profit model and, you know, I, I'm actually guilty of that. So this is me here learning um, how I'm wrong. Can you explain to me uh, and tell us why going back then you thought using open source um, when you're, you know, you're building the early infrastructure of the Internet in the 90s. Why were you such a proponent of open source, that model of having everyone to collaborate together um, and that, you know, kind of development governance system. Why did you decide to, to do that? And why were you such a, a, a fervent proponent of it? I actually got a PhD in theoretical physics from the French Ecole Polytechnique, but did my work in um, the research lab of electronics at MIT um, in the mid-90s. And in the mail room that we had back then on Unix station, um, there was Tim Berners-Lee and the early team of, uh, HTT, of the HTTP protocol. And all I remember was the energy and enthusiasm that these guys had 
about what they were doing while I was slaving away um, in, a, in a lab and doing, doing exotic mirror mathematical calculations. And when I finished my PhD, I knew I wanted to leave academia and, and go to software. And part of their energy was because they were doing all of this in, in open source. They were collaborating with developers all over the world uh, back then. And to me, that was a very exciting world. Uh, I, I could feel the energy. All I know was I wanted to be part of it. So when I got into software in the mid-90s, uh, the internet was just starting, and these guys had just tremendous energy. Open source was a new thing. Um, and, uh, and, and that's it. All I knew was, uh, was I wanted to be a part of it. And the same thing is going on with crypto. I can feel this energy. In the early days of of Bitcoin, like from two thousand and you know nine to two thousand and like I don't know, I would even go to say like to two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. Um, the development community, the developer community, the business community, and the user holder and miner community were extremely you know very close with a lot of respect at the same time because it was realized very early on that it's a very small pie and we have to work together to grow that pie. Um, and so there, there were really no like businesses to make money. Let me rephrase that. The businesses and the products that launched back then were, were businesses and products launched by people, myself included, who needed these products. So these were services. BitPay built their service. They built their company because the CEO needed that service. He felt that that was needed for our industry but for himself. I built BitInstant because simply there was no way to buy Bitcoin back then. So I and I wanted to buy Bitcoin. So I built a business to do that. Um, all the exchanges, you know, you look at Mt. Gox, Bitfin, you know, Bittrex, every company back then was the same. Um, and so my question to you is, do you see similar parallels to the early days of the Internet and the open source community? Um, as you did with the early days of, of Bitcoin, whereas people building out the infrastructure and the products were more building it out for, for themselves as opposed to like the industry on a whole. Yes, um, there's a mantra in open source um, that says, scratch your own itch. And basically it says that most people join open source efforts and start developing because they have a specific need. For the software, they, they will use it, start developing, debug, and uh, contribute back to, to the community. So the scratch your edge approach basically describes what you just said. If you're going to join a specific community and you feel that this or that is missing instead of talking about it, why don't you go ahead and do it because the barriers to entry have been uh, removed. Uh, that's definitely something, as a matter of fact, that attracted me to to Bitcoin in the early days. Um, I discovered Bitcoin by through friends in the music industry uh, that were using it to settle certain transactions, quote unquote. And they said, "Look, this is open source money. You understand open source. You understand money. Why don't you uh, take a look at it?" And as you know, open source was an integral part of the original. Uh, Bitcoin movement and the Satoshi White Paper. What do you mean by that? Well, what, what is it so? What's so interesting about Bitcoin and open source ledger in general? And I think we've lost sight of that a little bit. I agree. 
but I don't want to digress that, you. <laughs> is that there is no go- government. There is no corporation. It's an open source effort. In practice, it's been concentrated on miners, developers, and whales. But in theory, we have the promise of a peer-to-peer open source uh, money, open source currency. How do you feel about some of the people in our space that are creating a new push for more people to get involved in Bitcoin core development? And what I mean by that is not just um, developing or writing code, but also simple things like translating the white paper or commenting on the code or kind of like maintenance things or just anything you can be involved in development without being a developer, uh, spell checking, you know, the comments or just simple things. Now, I know a lot of developers think that's futile uh, and they want to keep core development to themselves and they want to be like the maintainers or the beholders or the custodians of that. But there's a growing movement, um, not online. I don't see it anywhere online. It's people that I speak to. There's a growing movement of people that want to encourage more more people to be involved in the in the Bitcoin development process at a, at a core, you know, protocol level, and that's because they feel like the more people that are involved, the better off our our open source system is. And because you mentioned governance, very important, and you know, there's there is a lack of governance, but I think that's a good thing. But I'm going to let you respond first. I was talking about government governments. Apologies for my crappy uh, French accent. Still no a good govern- question, though. I have. For sure, no, no, no governments, uh, no, uh, no companies, and so the, the, that the what is so attractive about open source DLTs is that nobody controls them, and I think today you know you have whether it be in the stablecoin category Libra or the Bank of China, those are two. I don't want to call them perverted because they are actually po- very positive contribution to the ecosystem, but certainly not open source in the spirit of the original Satoshi uh, paper. But to answer your question, I think the more the merrier, it, the, 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 it's, it's the stone soup uh, uh, myth approach, meaning you know, if we all got together and contribute bits and pieces, eventually you arrive at something quite magical through sheer size. And um, when I started uh, uh, JBoss in the in the late nineties. You know, we had Linux, we had Apache, and we had people who could not write code but were so excited to participate. They would translate uh, the documentation. I personally annotated the software given uh, to us by by an alien by the name of Rickard. Literally, he claimed to be an alien. Um, really? So, what do you real, mean? Well, just that. I mean, there's always a lore of of aliens, and this particular uh, head software developer that worked for me said, uh, I'm an alien, and the reason I work for you and not IBM or Oracle, because he was very in demand, he was one of the best developers out there, is that my military command structure, he was a military alien, uh, thinks that Earth is under psychic attack, and the only way we're going to develop the communication infrastructure is if we create the open source internet and the internet in open source outside of the control of any corporation or any government. Um, it's a true story. I mean, it's a crazy story, but it's a true story. And it's come to pass today. I mean, the internet and open source are, have a symbiotic chicken and egg relationship. Um, 
but back to your question, you know, I think uh, bringing people in for tra- for, for, for translating uh, documentation. I think in the case of Bitcoin, a lot of evangelization and paid for evangelization, or rather paid in evangelization. I, I remember exchanging very early on for me, 2011, with Gavin Andreessen of Bitcoin uh, development team. Some say he's the real Satoshi, but we all know that's Craig. Um, and it is a matter of- Are you being sarcastic in that? <laughs> of course. Oh, uh, you sound. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> you got me matter, there. You got me there. Uh, all right, all right. <laughs> all, of, all of this is a matter of public record. It's it's on my blog. I can send you the link after, and you'll see the exchange with Gavin. Anyway, I don't want to inflate my contribution to the early Bitcoin beyond what it what it is. What was, what was your early contribution to Bitcoin? Not I mean, much. Just an exchange with it's it's online. You can go and read it. Basically, I, I, somebody pointed out the paper. I read it in detail, and it made a lot of sense. And 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 I called very early many trends, such as look, this is not a money. This is going to be a volatile store of value. I actually called a multi layer marketing approach to it, and why why the early adopters were such uh, 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 um, enthusiastic proponents and exponents of the technology was because they had Bitcoins, they had mined Bitcoins. And mind you, when I got in was when uh, uh, Bitcoin just blew uh, to $20 a token back then, which was, oh my God, this token went times 10 in the year, you know, and... Uh, and I called that, that was never going to be a money just because of intrinsic properties. I spend a lot of time uh, doing research and reading and educating myself through the financial crisis. So I knew enough monetary theory to analyze Bitcoin from that standpoint. And, I and what, did, what did Gavin say to you? Like, what did he think? He, about said, what? he said, look, Satoshi wants us to be an open source effort. What does that mean to you, Mark? And I said, I was very practical. I said, well, look, I invented a model whereby my open source developer were compensated. And that's what was important to me, that these free software developers that came because they were passionate about software and not uh, focused on the money, I'm passionate that they do get a reward out of their, out of their efforts. And, and, and that came to pass. And I, I told him, are, are, are your developers compensated? And he said, well, look, everybody's sitting on a stash of Bitcoin that they've mined already. And so I said, well, we're done. That's it. Do you know what's You're- interesting? Gavin, yeah. do you know what year that was? It was like 2011 or 2010? 2011, yeah. I so do you want to hear that. something funny? I, I was huh? in uh, Vienna with Gavin a few months after you had this correspondence. And I was already running BitInstant and... I was in Vienna with like a bunch of other Bitcoiners and this was still very early, 2011 or whatever, end of 2011. And um, a lot of the um, industry people in the space were looking for a way to like kind of get together and work together uh, for advertising or messaging or whatever and to start like an industry association. And when I spoke to Gavin about it uh, in Vienna about my idea, his idea, he said to me, um, sounds great. I will uh, support you on this and I will join you with this. And obviously if Gavin joins you, then it's going to happen because he was like the de facto leader at the time. Not that right. we needed a leader, but it, you know, it is what it is like spirit, more spiritual leader. But you know what he said? He said, I will join on the condition 
that I get paid as a core developer. Mm. Very interesting parallel to what the conversation that you had. Did you use the word core developers? So the word core developer wasn't used, but okay. I can't, well, I can't tell you if it was or it wasn't, but I'm not going to tell you it was if I can't thousand percent guarantee, but he <laughs> said myself and other developers on Bitcoin mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. And he wasn't the only developer that eventually, so we ended up starting the foundation and Gavin did get paid as like a chief scientist and we did start paying other developers. Um, now, it's not what I wanted the foundation to be, actually. And so I ended up, you know, I wasn't, I, I led my term out. I was a founding director and I was the first vice chairman, but I led my term out and I never, you know, came back because um, that's not what I wanted the foundation to be. What he wanted the foundation to be was more of like a MIT media lab or like, you know, a think tank or one of these nonprofits that basically pay for like, you know, developers to work on open source software. And it's not a bad thing, but it's not really what I knew how to do. I'm this kid from Brooklyn who's just running a business, you know? Mm-hmm. So what was, what was your next, I mean, a lot of people that I met in, in the early days of Bitcoin, um, a lot of people that I met, um, yourself included, ended up like hearing about it, communicating with certain people and then kind of left to do something else and then came back, um, for a bunch of reasons. Um, did you know most people in the space actually heard about Bitcoin, left, and then came back when they heard about it a second time, myself included. What happened after you'd spoken to Gavin? Did you did you do something else? Did you come back? So, like you, I heard about it, wrote a blog, analyzed it in depth, uh, never understood the nonsense. We can come back to that. I call it the nonsense of the nonsense. Um, and uh, went back to actually running my own private money in the public markets and running ads fund strategy. I came back around 2013, 2014, when I saw my kids and, and the whole mining uh, uh, movement and, uh, and how they got into it and, and that era of, um, of Mount Gox. And my, Mount Gox was a big event uh, in, in my mind, uh, you know, that the hack and, and, and all the noise around it. And more interestingly is the fact that it didn't die at Mount Gox that I found fascinating. Isn't that so interesting? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there's a bad analogy about open source is that you can, it's like pee in the pool. You can put it in, but you can never take it out. And, and you know, I, I thought, I, I didn't think anything, actually. Um, I took it seriously. I mean, Bitcoin, I, I knew the potential uh, as an investment specifically. Um, but I was really pleasantly surprised by the resilience that it showed. And I think part of it has to do with the motivation of the early uh, adopters and, 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 you know, how, how, how uh, the, the proselytism around the early Bitcoin uh, uh, crowd, uh, but it certainly showed a lot of resilience. What the, that's a good point. So like, you know, the, 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 the people that were like the early ideology, you know, anarcho-capitalists, the people that were like just here to, um, proselytize Bitcoin and to just, just out of like pure love, like spread the gospel, you know, like the <laughs> evangelicals or the missionaries, or I don't know what a good parallel to say. Um, but on the, on the topic of parallels, like did, did the early days of the internet have that? Did, did early days of open source, like, um, people working on things like Java, like did, was that a thing Were there, were there like evangelists for that? Certainly. Um, 
Really? But, okay. Well, so the, the the birth of the of the open source movement is actually all the way back to Bill Gates and, and Richard Stallman. I don't know if you're you're familiar with that history of. I'm familiar of the with software. the story only because I saw a movie about it, and I don't remember which one, but it involved Probably Bill Gates. Pirates of Silicon Valley. Could have been, yeah, so something I'm, like that. Linus Torvald was in the was in the movie too. There was a bunch of different people that were involved in the early days of of the but there's so little that we know about that what went on back then someone needs to do like an untold stories of the early days of the internet someone you should do that that that, that's not a bad idea essentially bill gates was saying look we need to pay the developers and so i'm going to make the licenses for pay and richard stallman both were in in cambridge Uh, stallman was the head of ai at mit back when ai was nothing and he said it, it took a philosophical stance that we needed free software for free men. And so it was this very intense philosophical debate uh, between the two. And both, you know, came to fame, at least, uh, if not fortune, because Stallman never really made a fortune out of, of free software, even though he became a giant of the movement. But the early days were fueled by the passion of the free software developers. And just like Bitcoin, it had sort of a, I don't want to say a bad reputation, but, um, you know, to many business software people, the free, free software guys were these radical, rabid evangelists in Birkenstock talking nonsense about the future of mankind and free software running free men, basically. And... I think the same thing is going on today with Bitcoin and, and, and open source ledgers in general that, um, you know, crypto has become this dirty word uh, because of some of the past history and because of some of the dark web origins. Uh, I completely the- agree. And I'm, I'm definitely somewhat to blame. Uh, part of the reason I do the show is to almost like redeem myself because of the guilt that I feel for for the the negative reputation that I may have caused a lot of people told me that I haven't but you know it's kind of how I feel um but don't you think that negative reputation of bitcoin and blockchain has kind of went away for nefarious activities or do mainstream do mainstream people that aren't involved in our space still associate bitcoin and crypto with nefarious activities. And it's a good question because I'm I'm living in the bubble. I'm in the, the crypto bubble. So it's hard for me to see on the outside. So, I mean, tell me what you think. Is that still a problem that we have? I think it's the main problem that we have today in terms of where the industry is at. And okay. if, you analyze, if you analyze where we're at, uh, we're at what? Gartner calls the trough of disillusionment after the peak of expectations. Okay. And it's not perhaps not just the fact that there were dark web activity. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it was friend from the, the music business. And, you know, nobody makes money in the underground music business. They make money dealing drugs. Yeah, and it's so good to study these things and, and debate whether like they were good or bad for the space. And a lot of people, a lot of people, they were great right? for the space. Yes, I mean, yeah, you know, it's super important, and and you can't take it away from the internet. You know, the internet has always been this this dualistic beast. Uh, you know, as as this Broadway show likes to likes to remind everybody, the internet is for porn. 
And this is not a joke, but my first customers at JBoss were both the Church of Latter-day Saints, because they wanted this open-source software for generational soul-redeeming, and Playboy, uh, because they were at the forefront of, uh, of, of porn. But let's not get sidetracked too much. There's obviously dark web cash flows. There's obviously speculative cash flows. I don't think that's what's holding back. I think it's psycho- there is a dirty reputation, but I think what's holding on is that holding off is a lot of people's actually psychological, the opposite of FOMO. If you think about what's going on, a lot of people actually missed out on the past wave. Yes, they and did. There, and there's a lot of, you know, there's what, maybe tens of thousands of people in the real core. Uh, the core developers or the core Bitcoiners. I love how you're theorizing FOMO. I love that. That's cool. It's the opposite that's going on right now, right? Is there, do you have a term for it? I don't know. You tell me. Uh, you and David Waxman need to come up with <laughs> But you know what I'm talking about, right? It's, it's, they're, they're justifying. <laughs> yeah. You tell them you missed out and you know what? They feel redeemed because look at us now. You know, we're, we're running oh. on fumes of liquidity. And they're sitting on the sidelines with a new product we're marketing. I see that a lot. You have a lot of people, institutional money, that feel very self-satisfied and smug, but still they have this intrinsic FOMO for the next wave. And I think it's the, you know, there's a lot of, uh, in this industry, you know, we, like you said, we're in a bubble and the people outside see that it's a bubble. And I'm a big fan of Noriel Rubini, the, the NYU professor. And I think we're not giving him the right treatment, but he's calling out the bubble. And I think we need to clear that psychological hurdle, but everything is set up so that we actually do. And the next wave is going to have a lot, lot more people. It's not the dirty reputation. That's what they say. It's their own self-justification that they've missed the past wave. You know, what, um, what type of experiences can we learn from and then I want to move on to JBoss and then quantum mining and then talk about your new project, Two Prime. But the one of the last questions I have on this topic was, um, you know, they're 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 kind of like three. There there's there was the crypto civil war. Or I don't like to call it that, but it was what it was. And then you have like today, you have a lot of like tribalism. You have trolling, and then you have personal attacking. Um, and it almost like prevents theorizing that you and I are having, it prevents this, right? It prevents, it prevents people on, on opposite sides to, to compromise and come up with good solutions. And what ends up happening is we have, you know, you, you probably seen this with, with open sources, you come up with, with lazier, easier and faster solutions as opposed to more difficult, more time consuming and a little bit more contentious solutions to technical problems. So that's my fear um, that we'll have more lazy solutions. Um, did you ever feel that? Do you ever feel that in the '90s with with open source software? Did you ever feel that like people maybe taking the easier way out because they don't want to simply fight with other ones? Well, as soon as you put two people in a room, uh, you will have a civil war. Uh, I think that's the just the nature of especially of if they like Bitcoin. And I was going to say, <laughs> add the concept of money on top of two people in a room, and you know, by definition, in fact, the first thing that really uh, surprised me and in a way impressed me. Um, when I came back to, to, to cryptocurrencies in, in 2016, many of my employees were ex-employees at JBoss were running ICOs, um, was the ease, ease of forking. 
back in the 90s, you know, we had bickering, we had fighting, developers are prima donnas, and everybody has their ego, even J-Boss experienced splintering and hard forking and things like that. Um, but because money sort of supercharges the emotions and the psychologies of everybody, it, it really impressed me going to websites and on the front page, finding links to say, here's how to fork us. And I thought that was very interesting. It meant here's an atomization of the efforts. And to your point, um, I think having these infinite threads of, of mini, mini projects is fine, but there's a strength in, in number perhaps. Um, and so, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't want to theorize too much on, on the psychology yeah. of money and people, but definitely Although theorizing is a lot of fun. This infinite forking phenomenon is, is interesting. Oh, and you're killing me here because I wanted to move on. But now I have another question. I had a guest yesterday um, who said that hard forks should never be done unless for emergencies. Um, unless like we have an impending death of the Bitcoin network, hard forks should can always be the last option. And even if you have a, a, a something like like bigger blocks, which honestly should never have been contentious in the first place, um, and there are going to be a lot more contentious uh, debates about the future of the technology behind Bitcoin. But he thinks that the fact that we did not hard fork for that set a very, very good precedent and that we should be focusing on building solutions that don't require that. Um, I kind of agreed when I was listening, but now after listening to you, my opinion may be going back to the center. Um, what's your comment on that? Well, first of all, I don't really know because I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the, the tech and the Bitcoin space. I'm, I'm more focused on the financial applications personally. But if I think back to the open source days, again, I'm, I'm surprised by the facility and the speed at which we seem to be forking. I think part of it may be motivated by 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 easy disagreement, fast disagreement, where people want to just fork off, uh, and pun intended, and mm -hmm. some of it may be driven by greed, or, you know, oh, I'm going to do my own chain, etc., without further justification than, hey, here's my project. And so I think in this instance, because we have given the people the power to do so, we have to sit back and observe, is it good, is it bad, I don't know. Uh, it is a thing. Uh, uh, there seems to be a splintering of efforts. I tend to agree from my past um, that only hard forking in case of emergency or, or strong schism within, okay. the, the, within the schools of thought. Um, but, you know, it doesn't seem to be the case here. And I think people treat it a lot more lightly, which may not be a bad thing. I, I honestly do not know, John. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. 
you almost wonder like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees and I don't like that. So check it out bitpay.com forward slash charlie that's bitpay.com forward slash charlie you get a free card you don't have to pay for it usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more there's a commitment but you don't have to do that here it's a free card there's literally no reason to not try it out i've been using it for over three years so check it out and thanks for listening to untold stories over the years i've learned a lot from crypto winters a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. What was JBoss, for those who don't understand um, you know, it was an application server, but what were, I mean, what were people using before that? And how did that fundamentally change? Um, how did it, why was it so important that your first two clients were ones who it seemed like needed it the most? So like the first two, let me rephrase. So the, you know, the, the, er, the early adopters of any new technology, um, are the ones that need it the most, right? The ones that are not served well in in another in the other you know whatever other solution there is case in point uh silk road in bitcoin um people using bitcoin for nefarious things because these are these are industries or people that are uh disenfranchised or kicked out of the legacy financial system so using the parallel for jboss um you had the porn industry and the mormons um using using it um one of your first clients why like what was it and why was it so important well like you said it's always uh invention is the mother is the daughter of necessity or necessity oh, is I love the mother that quote. of invention yeah and and i think that that's very true can you repeat also, it one more time for the listeners uh, i'm sorry sure um and i have to look it up but i think necessity is the mother of invention which is a very survivalist approach meaning 
if you're going to bring a technology to market and if it's revolutionary in certain aspects, um, then those who need it the most are going to want to help you very early on. Uh, and in my case, it was the Mormons coming to my training and basically just throwing money at me a uh, little bit on, on, my, on, my, on my scale. I, I gave training, and for me, that was 30 grand, 40 grand for a training, which was a lot of money back then for me. And, uh, but, you know, just the, the, the willingness, not just out of the heart, but there is a, a, a cooperation, a symbiosis, um, and, and open source sort of facilitates that. Um, Back to the first part of your question as to uh, what JBoss was, um, it's what today, compared to what today is called layer two, in fact, in, in the Bitcoin uh, or blockchain ecosystem, or how do you scale uh, these networks? Um, I compare the state of cryptocurrencies today uh, to the mid or late 90s in the internet infrastructure game. Late 90s, uh, okay. Yeah, what was happening is you had a lot of corporations coming with their proprietary uh, APIs for middleware or how to scale databases to the web. Um, and, uh, and, and everybody was peddling their standards and please use my network, no, use my oh, network. Interesting. And it took the, uh, I remember vividly sitting um, at, at Sun Microsystem with the guys who were inventing the early Java, which was called the Green Project. And little green men again, and they were saying, "Look, uh, if everybody's peddling their own little project, we will never achieve critical mass of the internet. The only way, the only way, this is the way to quote the Mandalorians, uh, is we all get around the table, we all put our petty differences aside, and we agree on a standard that no one owns. It's got to be open source." Because if it's the, the problem with standards is everybody's okay with them as long as you use their standard. Meaning, you know, Roger Ver is okay with blockchain as you know, as long as you use his blockchain. Yeah, and same with the all the other blockchains. They're, they, exactly. they're happy with it, but they own those chains. They own the software, Correct. even Correct. if they're open source. They're still not like commercially used. There's still a lot of like knickknacks, you know. That's right. That's right. It's it's not the open source nature of the code. It's the open source nature of the collaboration. And it's a game theoretical point. If you own the thing and you want to put a rent-seeking mechanism on top of the internet, it's not going to work. And so everybody's got to get around the table. Open source is almost a prerequisite, but it's open collaboration. And that was a trick that Sun Microsystem pulled by standardizing the layer two of the internet protocols on top of TCPIP, how to scale HTTP, how to put the web pages, and that's where JBoss played. So we were I mean, one I, of the actors. Yeah. Be, before you continue, I mean, this may be like a like a very dumbed down question, but did we go the right path? You know, f pushing towards a multi layered uh, uh, protocol instead of like bigger blocks and just having everything on the main chain. I mean, with Lightning and 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 things like that. Are we? Is that the correct future for us in terms of looking at it from a software perspective or? of, you know, Bitcoin will be as big as the internet. Therefore, we need to make sure that we have the ability to reach critical mass. Is it Technologically speaking, because I'm not a, you know, I'm not a developer. I'm not a very good one, actually. But I'm, um, is that the right way forward? And it may not be a black and white answer, but I'm, I'm curious because, um, frankly, you know what you're talking about. I, I wrote some of the standards of, of the middleware layers uh, back in my days. 
Um, and let me tell you this, and it's a bit of a controversial point of view in the blockchain Bitcoin ecosystem. I don't think it's about tech at all. I think we decided to call the most secure, distributed, and slow database in the world money. And to paraphrase Antonopoulos, and everybody lost their minds. Um, but a lot of my ex-employees are today running the cloud. Uh, we know what it takes to, to scale these systems. And it's a combination of low-level protocol uh, and, and a lot of IT savoir-faire. And actually, I don't dive too much into the tech of blockchain because to me, intellectually and even financially, I don't invest in the tech. To me, this is not about the tech. And I think the industry maybe has lost sight a little bit of its initial mission, which was about finance, which was about open source money, which was about transnational money and stores of value, uh, and, and has maybe gotten lost a little bit in the weeds with, with the whole uh, uh, tech talk. What do you mean by that, the whole tech talk? Well, uh, I, when I went to CFC, the crypto finance conference, uh, and maybe it's a self-selected crowd because the title finance says it all. Sure. Um, uh, it's clear that if you look at what works, it's look, it's been 10 years in, in the blockchain ecosystem, yeah? I know. Since, Jeez. Since, the, since the Satoshi went paper. And five years in earnest with the smart contract stuff. You know, name a dApp that you use every day, like at the level of mail or Facebook or whatever. Name one. Nothing. 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 The, all smart contracts and dApps are still gimmicky. They're still, they're there cool, they're novelty, and you move forward. They're not. They're, it's cool, it's novelty, and we need to move forward. So you and talk so, about you talk about three different things that that where crypto has succeeded. You talk about three different metrics um, in 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 your quotes online. Can you can you talk about some of them? Like where where have we succeeded so far? I know a so, store of value is one of them. So definitely, let's look at the killer apps. The killer apps. Our thesis that the killer apps are here. They're hiding in plain sight. In fact, they're not even hiding. Yeah, I all, love this. When, yeah, they're, they're all financial and they're all exchange-centric. They are transnational store of value, Bitcoin and Ethereum. They are crowdfunding. Let's bring back the ICO. The phenomenon of the ICO is what partially what caused the boom of 2017. Sure, Other, all that rapid fund formation. Rapid capital formation, rapid fund formation. The problem was capital allocation. We misapplied the funds to tech no one needs parties on boats and, and, and conferences. You're but so right. Capital formation was phenomenal. It's a killer app of crypto. Killer app of crypto. We need to bring that back and apply it to the real economy. That's what we call a creative tokens. Third killer app hiding in place inside is the stable coins. Yeah, uh, asset back uh, coins. The Libra is the Bank of China. Uh, those are all financial those are what we need to focus or those are what we need to focus on going on if we want to make it out of the trough of disillusionment instead of, you know, fighting over the hash rates and the little bit of protocol here and there to scale something that maybe we don't really need is to scale. We just need to find the killer apps and double down on that. That's our thesis. When I moved here to Florida a few years ago, 
I met met a friend. I met someone who became, you know, we became really close friends and he um, was very interested. He's a retired, um, he sold one of his companies to E-Trade, you know, retired, ba- basically financial analyst, software analyst who wrote, you know, very successful and he plays golf all day. Um, but during the 2017 ICO bubble, he said, Charlie, I'm interested. You know, I own some Bitcoin, some Ether, some Litecoin. I'm interested in potentially investing, you know, buying some of these tokens or ICOs. Will you, you know, introduce me to some of the people behind the companies? And I said, absolutely. Uh, you know how many he actually invested in? Zero. Do you know why? Because yeah. whenever he'd get to the question, it'd be the same question. And whenever he'd get to that question, the answer was always bad. And therefore, he never bought any tokens. The answer was, the question was this, how will you manage your money? So basically, once you raise your $50 million, what's next? Who's your account? Who's your CFO? What's your business plan? How are you hedging against the crypto market downturn that will that will come? All these questions, you know, how will you prevent, um, how will you prevent graft, embezzlement? How will you prevent gluttony? You know, gluttony, I think, was brought, uh, gluttony is what brought down the downfall of, you know, like the ICO bubble and everything. Like you said, because people just wasted money on stupid things. Um, you're launching a new company called Two Prime. You just announced it a few days ago. And you 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 take the best parts of Bitcoin, you know, the, the things that we succeeded with, and you also take the worst parts of the ICO bubble, you make them better, you combine it all together to launch your new your new project. So when I was doing the research, it was super intriguing and interesting because you were very honest with what was good and what was bad. So without me, you know, telling the listeners about it, can you tell us what two prime is, you know, some of the, 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 the good things you took and some of the bad things you took and made them better? Sure. So again, the killer apps of crypto are transnational store of value, meaning something uh, that exists with a price set through supply and demand, uh, capital formation and crowdfunding, the future of crowdfunding will exist in these, in these crypto exchanges, and we want to see that future come to pass. And third bit, uh, an asset backing of the tokens. So what we do with 2Prime, 2Prime um, is an effort by Alexander Bloom and myself as partners. Uh, Alex, some of your listeners may remember Alex with the days of Atomic Capital. He was the CEO oh, yeah. of Atomic, the leader in the STO space. And I was an investor uh, in Alex. Uh, he did this very innovative $100 million deal with Agenix, a medical uh, company. And what we found out uh, was that there's, there's no liquidity. Long story, no liquidity. Long story short, uh, when he closed Atomic, I said, Alex, come help me with this new concept that I have. And Alex is the, is the COO. What is 2Prime? 2Prime is a financial management company. We market a token uh, and we release it into uh, the exchanges with a proprietary uh, market-making mechanism, token release mechanism, we call the continuous token offering. See, the problem with ICOs was not the crowdfunding. The crowdfunding was phenomenal. Uh, And the fact that investors, you know, I'm an LP in funds. As you know, LPs are locked up. The fact that as an early investor, I can be fully liquid on a token exchange is, is a killer application. And part of the reasons why ICOs uh, became such a phenomenon. Um, and, and that's a killer app. 
where we failed was in capital allocation. And if you look at how private equity allocates uh, uh, capital to uh, early stage companies, well, they don't even touch the FF friend and family stage. VCs are not in the business of, of, of growing these little seedlings. They're in the business of growing the, the, the seedlings that have taken root and become little trees and growing them. Um, but the way they do that is you go seed, excuse me, friends and family, seed, series A, series B. And at each stage of the game, the numbers get bigger. In fact, let's not go down that rabbit hole, but yeah. some argue that with WeWork and all of that, you know, the VCs have gotten a little gluttony themselves and a little greed themselves on that a private equity ramp up. Uh, but the, the case remained that it is a more optimized system because we kind of de-risk along the way. The problem with the ICO was the I part, the initial part. Uh, you know, people allocated large sums of crypto funds to basically unknown and unproving friends and family stage concepts. Uh, and that resulted in a massive case of capital misallocation. So what we're trying to do is to introduce this continuous token offering release mechanism where we offer a fraction of the treasury up front and, as, and we invest in a certain thesis. The first product uh, that we're marketing is targeting at the blockchain ecosystem. And I'll just take 20 seconds to walk you through that. Where, well, I'm glad to talk about the token release mechanism, which is close to the EOS and block one dynamic. We allocate the funds to the blockchain ecosystem. Every money we raise does not go to two prime, which is the financial manager. It goes to a foundation that invests in the crypto ecosystem. So you can think of our token as a meta token, meaning a, a, almost like an index fund, even though it's not an index fund. It's just a token that represents many other tokens. Also, DeFi staking is in there as well as fund of funds. So we're looking for partners that know what they're doing, that have a good reputation that we can allocate funds to. And what we do with this token is we go and talk to institutionals. On the one hand, in the United States, we have a Reg D 506C SPV uh, that we market, meaning accredited investors only. Um, and we position it as a way to get exposure to the Bitcoin ecosystem in the way that is diversified and basically doesn't suck and has an SPV, which they know how to deal with instead of tokens. And on the flip side, uh, in about a month, we're going to list the token on Liquid, the exchange out of Oh, Japan. I like Liquid. They're good people there, actually. I'm a big exactly. fan of them. Yeah, they're great yes, people. Yes, us too. And, you know, we, we've done the tour of the bigger exchanges and everybody was sort of, oh, no, 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 you want to do IEO, buy the IEO. And it's all pump and dump and it's all, it's not for us. I mean, I, I realize that it's still a thing a little bit. Um, but I think, you know, what's beyond the ICO, what's beyond the IEO, certainly not the STO. The STO is on a different orbit, I think. But in the crowdfunding thing, we think the CTO, the continuous token offering, um, is, is a formula that we want to see succeed and that we're going we're gonna to market. So we're going with liquid. We've chosen liquid. Why? Because they're actually small, clean, and regulated. And, and that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. What does a, so if Bitcoin were to follow the same um, course of, you know, the early days of the internet and um, what does that look like? What does that look like 10 years from now? Um, if we follow the same course and this is a question that I've actually never asked, 
Were there any competing internets with the one, or was it, that's a bad question. Were there any competing? It's not um, a bad question at all. Okay. Were there any, you get, you understand what I'm trying to ask because I don't like, Absolutely. I don't want to use the term internet incorrectly. You know, I don't want to name names because it's a small industry and I'm, uh, I'm not here to make friends, but I'm not here to make enemies either. Um, there was this famous, very visible, let's just say VC on stage. And he told me, excuse me, he told everybody, um, uh, imagine if we put a token mechanism to monetize and do you know, rent extraction on the HTTP, TCPIP layers of the internet. Um, and, and he seemed very convinced by his own argument that, that the greed is a VC, so I get it, it's stuck in his book. You know, and as an open source developer, I was insulted on many layers, but beyond the insult, which is a personal thing, I was thinking through it and go like, he, he doesn't get it. That, again, people got around the table and, and laid down their, their petty competition because they understood from a game theoretic standpoint that if everybody was pushing their own standard, Nobody was going to go anywhere. And the only way we all got together is by collaborating on a base layer of protocols. I think, you know, so to answer your question, yes, there was a lot of people that tried to make the internet proprietary. And what we learned is that the symbiosis of collaboration via open source is what really made the, the internet. I think the same thing is going on right now. Uh, you can, have we look at, can we look at how vibrant a developer community is as a metric of whether or not that token or coin or blockchain will be successful? Um, well, <clears throat> if this was open source internet days, I'd tell you that's the only metric. In the case of Bitcoin, I know that it's a, uh, the case of blockchain in general, not, not Bitcoin, excuse me. I know that it's a metric, but you know, I think it has most, more to do with network effects, adoption, which is not necessarily about the code. And if we believe our thesis that, in fact, the, the Bitcoin blockchain ecosystem is not about tech, but it's about the financial applications, then we should measure the success of a blockchain by the liquidity that it has in the exchange. Oh. Meaning the network of people that are actually dealing with this token. Because people and put what, their money where their mouths are. People, look, my, my father was an executive with Procter & Gamble, the marketing company. And then I was trained in the dark arts of Jedi marketing very early on. <laughs> Here's a little bit of chum. And I know you know this because... Hold on, I'm we're going to cut to our sponsor now. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Tell us the secret. <laughs> <laughs> you know the secret. It's Chomsky. It's linguistics. The brain is equipped to associate about five individual names per category. So take anybody out there that is not an expert and tell them, hey, the soda category, who's there? And they'll tell you Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, whatever. The case of crypto, they'll tell you Bitcoin, Ether, and pick your favorite third. If you're an expert, you can go up to seven. Where I'm going with that is that you have seven names usually that are going to bubble in your consciousness, uh, in your memory, as a matter of fact. We're talking biological hardware here, a Chomsky theory of linguistics, that you're going to hold and entertain per category about six or seven if you're in the space, which is why most of the gardeners of the world uh, uh, sell you a new category. If you can't break through 
in your uh, in your in the existing categories. Let's manufacture a category for you, and we'll put you on the leader quadrant there. <laughs> By the way, our category is the continuous token offering. You know, and the examples we have right there over there is EOS, XRP, and very soon the FF with two prime. Those are the it's, top three. It seems <laughs> like the continuous token offering um, is a popular model because it continues to it continues to guarantee a, fa- a somewhat of a fair distribution because the one of the the biggest arguments of like the ICO or kind of the model of doing a crowd sale or you know letting letting some people pre-mine is that without fair distribution your your blockchain is doomed to fail because you know more than me even that half of the battle is socioeconomics is how you know sociology how we you know act and react and use and spend and control and hold and feel about, you know, money and value. And that's kind of like half the battle with, with all these blockchains. So by doing the continuous token offering, it prevents, um, from what I understand, it prevents, um, a smaller group of wealthier entities or people from controlling the distribution, um, or a a super large amount of any token, therefore not being able to control the, uh, you know, the protocol itself. Um, and yes, everyone has a price, but when you have the price of con- the price, the value of controlling a valuable blockchain is almost priceless. Therefore, I don't like the argument when people tell me, okay, yeah, distribution wasn't fair, but if shit hits the fan, eventually these token holders have a price and they'll buy and they'll sell it. And distribution will be more fair. I don't know. Like that doesn't, that's like a cop out. That's a cop out. I don't like that, that, um, that answer. So with the continuous token offering, it almost like guarantees, um, distribution to continuously go on and therefore it prevents hoarding early. Right. And it also prevents the ability for very few entities to control all of the tokens. That's how I see it. And I kind of like that. I, I agree with that assessment, even though we're in the early days and we have, you know, two examples today that have been successful, EOS and XRP, uh, but that have raised billions of dollars. Uh, EOS is a token that resulted in a fund. You know, people joke and ask us, are you a, a tokenized fund? And we know, we go, no, we're a token fundized. Uh, namely, you know, EOS raised on the premise of of technology and and dApps and but ended up in block one if you structurally look at what happened. XRP and Ripple is even uh, a more interesting example because all the tokens and treasury go to the equity. So basically, which is why some of the XRP executives were the briefly, if for an hour, the wealthiest men on earth doing the boom because they own the token. To your point, um, the fact that a lot of Early people, you know, in the ICO with a large discount and large block allocation into private sales, that ended up being self-defeating. Why? Because all of a sudden you have a whale that controls the supply, pumps the price, and then dumps it. Exactly. And, and so it's self-defeating because you don't have a network of, of people neither using nor huddling. So all the altcoins out have been, you know, a handful of players in the cap table, so to speak, that eventually dump. I think to your point, it's not the number of developers in the in the CVS. Again, I was CVS, meaning the, the, 
the control version software system. I was a software developer. I was one of the pioneers of the open source movement. We measured ourselves by the number of commits and committers. I think this is irrelevant for the crypto space right now. Yes, there's a lot of tech being developed. Yes, some of it will be relevant. But we personally focus on the financial application. Therefore, what's important is the network of people who are dealing in your token. The network of people who are aware in, of your product and are oh. going to be on the, on the demand side. And so you have to think more about psychology. And I think it's very close to what you do professionally. Is you are putting those words out there and people listen to you to say, okay, what are the trends, etc. And the network is really this awareness of a particular brand. And yes, if we have a continuous token offering, then those who come early with a small with a small allocation, we take the risk early, just like friends and family, just like seed rounds and just like series A, uh, own a small portion, but get the rewards if the thing goes on. And just like SoftBank, you know, comes later and takes very large chunks with a lot of money, uh, you know, I think the same thing could happen here. So instead of just $50 million and everybody takes off and goes to the Bahamas, uh, we could end up with several billions of dollars raised with real life applications here. I want to continue talking to you about that subject, but um, a burning question I had to completely change topics for a second, I wanted to ask you earlier is you studied and you did a lot of research with quantum mechanics and a lot of people like have the biggest fear and you know, I'm going to ask, but the biggest fear about Bitcoin is the coming of quantum computing and you know how that would affect the mining space. Satoshi almost foresaw that and said that, you know, and he built, in, built into the system the difficulty adjustment and even built into an emergency difficulty adjustment. Do you think the difficulty adjustment mechanisms built into Bitcoin is enough of a protection against oncoming quantum computing and be able to mine faster, but also solve, you know, basically be able to prime numbers faster than anyone else? It's a great question, and I'm going to take a little bit of time and answer it in two parts, if you don't mind. Yeah, please. Um, thank you. Um, so far, you've um, given me the best answer because you thought you're thinking about it. Um, the first thing that puzzled me in 2011 when I read uh, Satoshi's paper was the nonsense. And to this day, I call it the nonsense of the nonsense. This is this adjustable difficulty you refer to, the leading zeros. Really? And okay. In, in hindsight, I understand why. It's because the only way he could think back then, and he wasn't wrong, it, it came to pass, it came to be, it worked. The only way he could think of securing the network was making sure that there was such a price, an energetic price, a thermodynamic price to pay that for somebody to hack the system would require enormous resources beyond the reach of most people. And he succeeded in that. And, you know, I know a lot of people either dismiss or harp on the fact that we consume 3% of the earth energetic output to secure uh, a, a chain um, that has very little uh, usage for payment or the banking system, etc. But the proof point is here. I think proof of work uh, is historically a gem. Uh, it's historically one of those star technologies. It's also one of those that maybe we will move past uh, soon enough, uh, either through regulation 
just like China that says, look, you were diverted too many resources to something that has only financial value, meaning miners making money, uh, and diverting resources from the real economy. Or uh, the chain gets hacked somehow, and then we have to go to new uh, algorithms of trust and security, which are not so energy intensive. Personally, I don't know, uh, and and you know, and you know the guys just as well as I do that are working on the new chains. I'm very interested as to what's going on in the peer-to-peer, true peer-to-peer system. Because if you think about the promise of Bitcoin, uh, in fact, the tagline of Bitcoin was peer-to-peer open source money. Uh, network topology where it's peers, everybody at the same level. Decentralized, beyond decentralized, a distributed system. The reality of Bitcoin is unfortunately way short of that. We're actually a fairly centralized system, as you know. The miners are centralized around the cheap power sources. The developers are centralized around the sources of funding. And funding is centralized around the whales in Silicon Valley. So in practice, we like to bang on the banking system for being uh, centralized, but that's also a linguistic act. The banking system is actually highly decentralized. That's one of the hard truths we like to put out, whereas the Bitcoin system is highly centralized, probably due to the proof-of-work uh, algorithms. It's not blockchain technology. Rather, it, I believe proof-of-work will one day be seen as one of the most important breakthroughs in human technology. I mean, that's my belief. I think, I think it's very possible. And it also may be one day seen as the fax machine to the internet. Wow, that's a good point. I don't know. I, I just don't know. But I, I don't see us consuming 10% of the earth resources just in good conscience, you know, in an era of millenniums concerned with... with but you need with, to, though. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you understand physics better than I do. So, so convince me that I'm wrong. Um, I feel like the basic, okay, so the basic, you know, I took like physics 101. So please forgive me here if I'm like misquoting or misunderstanding certain properties or laws. But um, some of the most, um, the basic law of physics is that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can only be transferred. And so when you have something like proof of work, from what I see is proof of work is that transfer of energy. So it's not, it's not resources that are being wasted like you don't see you don't see hospitals being you know electricity being diverted from hospitals to mine for bitcoin but what you are seeing is without bitcoin environment without proof of work environmentalists would not have anyone on their side pushing for more efficient and better uh, forms of, of energy. And what I mean by that is look who are the ones building the hydroelectric dams in China. It's the Bitcoin miners and all the extra electricity is going towards towns and cities. It wasn't a government building those, right? So you have, you know, like free market economists will, 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 will cite this as a perfect example of infrastructure being built by the people who need that infrastructure. So I, I, I really don't see proof of work and this is one, honestly, this is, this is the topic that I get the most flack at. I, I, I'm scared of like the green party coming and like, you know, knocking on my door tomorrow. But honestly, I, I, I don't, I don't see, I think climate change is a real thing, but I don't see how proof of work is a waste of energy. And to the complete opposite of that, 
I don't see how proof of stake and, and all the other, you know, consensus algos that are, are, are largely based on proof of stake. I don't see how proof of stake actually can exist and it can actually be sustainable, not just as an economic model, but scientifically, you know, following the laws of physics, I don't see how proof of stake can actually be sustainable long term. I don't really have a dog in that fight. Um, so I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and, and, and argue with with your listeners or you for, for hours because I, I don't really care. Um, on, on pure philosophical uh, and intellectual grounds, I'll, I'll point a few things out, though. Uh, I agree with you. Proof of stake is even worse uh, because it compounds uh, the, the, the head holder. So let's not even go there. Um, I've heard for many years the argument that, oh, look, um, we are transmuting this energy into, into a symbol, uh, but the energy is lost uh, for sure. Um, the energy is spent. We have a symbol that has a market value. And so it's not entirely lost because we have created a financial symbol, but its real physical economic value is gone wasted. It has a true market value as long as it's sustainable, but it has no intrinsic value. Um, this is just a fact. Um, you know, when people say I've, I've stored the value of the coin in, in the blockchain, uh, it's, it's a profound misunderstanding of several concepts, including sunk cost uh, in, in economic terms. Uh, the cost of miners is gone. Uh, it works because the value of the coin is sustained in the markets. But if the value of the coin were going to zero tomorrow, pray tell me how you're going to recoup. You don't have a house that is built. You'll never real economic. That's industry. a good point. That's a good right. point. And so I'm, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not partisan there, but on street. Uh, uh, in any case, uh, I think you're entirely right about the excess capacity and the dams. Uh, I actually started two prime thinking about the two prime thing in the context of financing smart cities. I'm an investor in IoT, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to divert too much. And then I took a long detour through native tribes of Alaska. Don't ask. It was very interesting. Hello, Jack, if you're listening to this. Um, and, and there we were talking to the real governor of Alaska. And the problem they have is it's literally, you know, it's too big a territory and, and they want to do geothermal, but they don't know how to build the power yeah, lines. The, the economic problem is the power lines, several millions of dollars per mile. So it's not economically feasible. How can how the, can our listeners follow um, you and your projects? So we have a website, tuprime.io. Uh, you're going to hear a lot about us because my goal here, my, I, I retired 15 years ago after selling my company to Red Hat. And I went back to physics, music, occult religion, and uh, an open source, really, and my own family. I grew up in a cult uh, religion. Is that right? Yeah. We'll have to discuss that one. That day could be untold stories of cult religions. Yeah, fascinating what's going on. I, is, is I right? didn't Which leave one? until a few years ago. Is that right? I was excommunicated completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From from which cult, if you don't um, mind? We'll, we'll talk about it offline. Sure, no problem. I understand. It's a long story. Uh, Super yeah, long but I, story. Went, I became a hermit, basically. Uh, and I went back a bit, went back to physics and I went back to music. I discovered religion through music, the, the OTO cults, etc. Uh, Opus Dei in Spain. Uh, and I'm telling you all this because 
Okay, so yeah, I took a detour. So sorry, I agree with you that uh, building uh, geothermal plants, hydrodynamic plants, to do something as futile as waste a lot of CPU to compute hashes that no one really needs uh, to secure the blockchain uh, actually may result on a net positive in the end because we have real economic infrastructure now. And this is better than nothing. Dr. Mark Fleury, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, we haven't talked about quantum another time. I know that's for part two. I need to leave our <laughs> listeners hanging on this, but there are so many different topics now that I want to talk to you about. So I'm going to book you for a part two. I'm super excited. And again, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers. And information is power.